Well, we are working with the doctrine of eternal security in equipping hour, uh, last two weeks and this morning, and this will be our last morning on this topic. So I want to allow a little time for uh, Q&A at the end. So if you have questions, um, go ahead and write those down, and uh, we'll try to get to some of those at the end of today. And I want to open us in prayer, and we'll get started. Lord, thank you for another day uh, to live on your earth, to breathe your air, um, to work with the resources that you've given us. Lord, I thank you for this church, and I thank you for your word and our language, that we get to know your mind and your heart, and that we get to study your word. I pray that it would help us this morning uh, as we think about our own lives and our own hearts, uh, the dangers of falling away, and the joys of knowing that we belong to you. Uh, we pray that all of these things would come together for us in a way that is helpful in Jesus' name, amen. We're looking at how three realities in the scriptures work together. The doctrine of eternal security, warnings against falling away, and encouragements to persevere. And we've discovered that they are all actually in the Bible, and so they, they do work together. And uh, we've kind of just been putting them again, uh, next to one another and, and seeing some of the ways that they work out. Another way to approach this question is stated for us in 2 Corinthians 13.5. And there Paul gives this encouragement to the Corinthian believers. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? Right, so here's a, a command from God through Paul to take a look at your own heart. Take a look at your own life. Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. And as we've seen already, someone who is in the faith genuinely can never be taken out of the faith. But there are many who believe that they are in the faith who are not. And so where we left off last week uh, was page six, and that false profession will eventually be manifested. False profession will eventually be manifested, either in this life or in the life to come. What we want to look at this morning, beginning on page 6, is capital letter E, that warnings serve God's purposes and our well-being. And, and I've heard the argument on a number of times that, well, you can't believe in the doctrine of eternal security because there are warnings against falling away in the Bible. Have you heard this argument? Uh, and this argument is often uh, levied with the assumption that warnings given to believers about falling away serve no purpose. Right? Have you heard that before? If, if you're going to talk to somebody who can't fall away because of eternal security, and you're going to warn them against falling away, what point does the warning have? Therefore, eternal security is wrong. Right? That's how that argument goes. I want us to recognize that warnings against falling away actually do serve very specific purposes in Scripture. I want to look at just a few of those this morning, and, and we'll look at some of the passages related to that. First of all, God knows that there will be pretenders. God knows there will be pretenders. God knows the heart. God sees the heart. God knows that in the church, there will be those who don't actually believe, but have all the dressings of belief. God knows that in the world, there will be wheat and tares. We looked at that last week. God knows there will be pretenders. Not everybody who's a non-Christian attends Anton LaVey's house of worship, right? The church of Satan, right? Not, not everybody who is not a Christian uh, just calls themselves an atheist. Not everyone who's not born again just lives for whatever pleasure they can find. There are many people who are very religious who are not born again. There are many people who are Protestant and not born again. There are many people who are evangelicals and not born again. There are people at Grace Bible Church who are not born again. And Jesus gives the warning that there will be many who say on, on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and this and this in your name? There will be people who are convinced in all of their sincerity that, that they were actually laboring for Jesus who never were born again. And so God knows that there will be pretenders. The corollary to that is, we don't know who they are. God knows, but we don't know who they are. 
And so warnings are God's means, first of all, by which the elect persevere. Warnings serve a very specific person purpose for Christians. When, when we as believers read about warnings about falling away, we say, oh, I don't want to fall away. And we tighten our grip on Christ and we shore up those things which have become loosened and, and we begin to resist again the press of the world trying to squeeze us into its mold. And, and, and we gather together again with God's people and we have our hearts recalibrated to the truth. We see those warnings and we run to Christ. We run to Christ's church. And that has a very specific purpose for believers, a warning against falling away. Warnings also serve an evangelistic purpose. Pretenders can be revealed in time. So someone who ostensibly would show up on that day and say, Lord, Lord, I thought I was a Christian. I did all this stuff. They might read that passage before they die and say, oh, I'm not a real Christian. In fact, many of you in this room have that very testimony. Grew up in the church, read the Bible, had Christian parents, um, thought you were a Christian, and then one day realized that you were not a Christian yet. You had external trappings, but you didn't have internal transformation. You had never yet been humbled by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know what it's like to have been a pretender and then to have been given new life. And the warning passages in Scripture actually serve an evangelistic purpose of rooting out false faith in time. And that's a good purpose of God. And then a final purpose for the warning passages is they actually become a vehicle for greater judgment. Right? The principle is to whom much has been given, much will be expected. Jesus said of his own time, of his own uh, neighborhoods that he grew up in, if you had seen, or if Sodom and Gomorrah, or if Tyre and Sidon had seen the miracles that you've seen in this neighborhood, they would have repented long ago. In other words, greater revelation rejected brings greater judgment. And that is one of the things that actually brings God glory. God's glory as king, God's glory as judge is magnified when those who deserve judgment are judged. And greater accountability from greater exposure to truth brings greater judgment. And the warning, purposes, warning passages serve that purpose as well. What I want us to think about um, for believers for whom these warning passages serve the purpose of keeping us close, of recalibrating our hearts, of, of tightening our white-knuckle grip on Christ. I want us to observe what I call fall factors fall factors. And I've listed a number of things that the New Testament delineates are causes of falling away from Christ. And there are a lot of them here. And I, I just want to work through some of these. And I've, I've numbered them. And we've got uh, some passages that give several of them at one time. And so you'll see the verse references to the right. Um, but the numbers on the left are just no particular order. Um, but these are some of the fall factors for Christians to watch out for because they are the pathway to apostasy. And these warnings will serve our hearts well to keep us close to Christ. And for a genuine believer, actually serve the purpose of preserving the elect. So from Matthew 13, and you can turn there. Matthew 13, verse 18 and following. Again, this is back to the parable of the sower and the seeds. And we see detailed in here a number of these fall factors, and some of them come up in the parallel passages in Luke and Mark. The first fall factor I would observe is just a lack of understanding. Verse 19, when anyone hears the word of God and does not understand it. And so, if you're exposed to truth... But you just write it off. You say, ah, it's too hard. It's a bunch of new vocabulary. Uh, it's, a, it's a bunch of information. I mean, if going to heaven is going to be as hard as actually reading and investigating and studying and thinking, I want no part of it. Um, that is a, a first cause of 
falling away from the truth. The truth comes right to your doorstep. The seed is broadcast and it falls right to you. You hear it and you don't understand it. And listen, if if you're in a position this morning where you hear the word of God on a regular basis and you say, but I don't understand it. Don't walk away. Pray. Ask God for help. He loves to give wisdom to those who humbly come to him and ask. And put yourself under the word of God. Read it. God loves to answer the prayer for understanding of his word. A second fall factor is Satan, verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away. Listen, Satan has a vested interest in people not believing the gospel. If you were to read his uh, job description on his business card, snatch her away of the broadcast word of God. Snatches it away. And it's interesting to watch throughout church history where the church has been persecuted. Bibles get burned. Bibles get confiscated. Um, Preaching gets turned off, shut down. I'm reading about the history of the, the French Huguenots, the French Protestants who were persecuted. And, and basically, the, the church in France has never recovered from the persecution of the Protestants in the era of the Reformation. Um, and often what would happen is the, the, the Catholic church in France at the time of the Huguenot Reformation, uh, they would single out pastors, they would single out teachers, and they would imprison them or kill them, and they would confiscate Bibles. Satan loves to take away the seed of the word, snatch it away like a thief. A third fall factor is a lack of roots, despite an immediate enthusiasm. This is verses 20 and 21. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky place, this is a man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. No firm roots. Listen, if, if you are investigating the truth, or you are new to the truth, don't be satisfied with a surface understanding. But plunge deeply into the word of God. There is a very real risk that a surface understanding will not last. That is a fall factor to watch out for. Verse 21 gives us fall factor number four. It is affliction, right? This is something that comes outside of us, from outside of us. Uh, When affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Affliction is the sort of immediate cause of falling away. Why did someone fall away under affliction? Well, you could say, well, they didn't count the cost. They didn't say, hey, I want Christ. I want forgiveness of sin. I want God. I want eternal life. And I don't care what it costs me. Take the world. Take my life. Whatever it costs, I want Christ. Right? The one who folds under affliction is the one who has not accurately counted that cost. Right? And, and a lot of times it takes an external affliction to reveal what's going on on the inside. Jonathan Edwards, in uh, helping Christians sort of test their own hearts, am I a genuine Christian, asked these two questions. Would I give up everything to have Christ? If I, could, if I could have everything in the world, would I give it up to have Christ? Or is there anything I would want in this world more than Christ? And those two questions are great at sort of rooting out in your heart. Do I want this infinite treasure and am I willing to forsake all this trash to get it? But when the rubber meets the road and and afflictions come and they start taking away that precious trash, will you leave Christ in order to try to get it back? That's affliction. The next one is persecution. Also verse 21, when persecution arises. This is when people say, oh, you follow Christ? I don't like him, therefore I don't like you. And then there's some sort of adverse treatment. We experience light persecutions in our day. Some of you experience heavy persecution. Some of you know what it's like to be rejected by family, friends, to lose employment, simply because of your loyalty to Christ. And throughout church history, many have known what it means to lose their lives and their families and everything precious out of loyalty to Christ. And oftentimes, persecution reveals what someone truly loves. 
it can be easy to affiliate with Christianity when there's no persecution. It can be easy to affiliate with Christianity when it's even rewarded, right? And and Bible Belt America has experienced a really remarkable time of religious freedom that may be going away in significant measure, but it has not always promoted the purity of the church because it's so easy to affiliate with Christ. One of the most tragic things that happened Uh, which was seen as a tremendous victory for the church in the 4th century, was Emperor Constantine's embracing of Christ. And I believe he did so for political expediency, not out of new birth. And I think that was proven at his deathbed when he affiliated himself with those who denied the deity of Christ. Was actually baptized an Arian, 4th century Jehovah's Witness. So I think he (laughs) subscribed to Christianity as a means of how can I get the entire Roman Empire, which is starting to fall apart and crack at the seams, but there's Christians in every province, all the way to Britain, North Africa, everywhere in between, Asia to the Atlantic. There's Christians everywhere. If we call this a Christian empire, then we can reunite and glue together what is falling apart under my rule just by calling ourselves Christian. Well, the the effect of that was, you know, an emperor earlier, Christians were being thrown to lions, and under Nero, they were torched for his garden parties, and it cost a lot to be a Christian. And you didn't get baptized unless you had counted the cost, and you said, going in the water to affiliate myself with Christ and his people could cost me everything. But as soon as the emperor is a Christian, and the empire is a Christian empire, Well, now being a Christian means getting a good job in the empire. It means benefits, and it means I don't have to change my life. I can still worship at all the altars of the Roman pantheon, but now they have Christian labels. I don't even have to change my life. I can just be Christian, and we're all great. That was a tragedy for the church, for the purity of the gospel. And eventually, the Christian empire persecuted the genuine Christians. So that there has been a significant cost to following Christ throughout church history. Persecution often reveals genuine faith. By the way, at the Council of Nicaea, this is a, we're in the Christmas season, it's time for a good Christmas story. Council of Nicaea was a, a church meeting uh, with a bunch of churches regionally throughout the Roman Empire that got together to debate the deity of Christ and there were Arian or early Jehovah's Witness pastors that showed up and denied the deity of Christ. And there was Athanasius and others who held the deity of Christ that were defending the deity of Christ at this big church meeting. Um, Nicholas was a pastor um, who stood up for the deity of Christ and actually punched Arius in the nose at the meeting. Right? I'm not condoning a fist fight for the defense of the deity of Christ, but you need to know that Nicholas, St. Nicholas... Saint Nicholas, Santa Claus, punched a Jehovah's Witness in the nose at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, defending the deity of Christ. Christmas, what, what does that have to do with persecution? Oh, at the Council of Nicaea, you had, you had Christians who had suffered persecution, who still had the marks of whippings and beatings on their skin, for whom it had cost everything to love Christ, at this meeting, debating with people for whom it had cost nothing to be affiliated with Christ because now it's a Christian empire. And, and the emperor Constantine actually called the church meeting together to have theological discussion about Jesus. And there were really hard discussions about, well, how do we know who's really a Christian? Well, I got these marks on my back. And, and all these other people just walked in free, easy. And we've lived in the shadow of that monumental shift in church history ever since. So persecution can reveal genuine belief, and it can also root out false belief. Another fall factor, number six, is the worry of the world. Verse 22, the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So someone says, oh yes, Christ The word of God, I want that. And then the cares and concerns and the worries of temporal existence choke it out. Christian, beware. That is a fall 
factor. The deceitfulness of wealth, likewise. Um, we'll, we'll see that one again later. And then the word of God is choked and unfruitful. That's another fall factor to be aware of. Whether it's the worries of the world, whether it's the deceitfulness of wealth, anything in your life that is choking out God's word is a threat to your spiritual destiny. Do you understand that? You watch in your own life and you see the word of God being choked out. There's less and less space for God's word in my life and there's more room for everything else. Warning signs. That is the road to apostasy. Number nine, desires for other things. This comes from the parallel passage in Mark. Um, Temptation is listed in Luke 8 in the parallel passage and the pleasures of this life. Listen, other things, sin, pleasures, temptations, all of these things are a threat to your soul. You do not treat them lightly. We don't coast in the Christian life where, oh yeah, I got Christ, I made that decision and I'm gonna entertain these other things and just let them sit side by side. The pleasures of life, sin, they get shotgun. Yeah, Jesus is driving, but this other stuff's in the front seat too. That's not how this works. Uh, Jesus will have no rivals. He will have no peers. He is to have first place in everything. And those things that choke out the word um, or rival Christ for first place in our life are actually the things that lead to Christians, so-called Christians, falling away. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. A twelfth fall factor is paying attention to deceitful spirits. 1 Timothy 4.1. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith. There it is. It's a reality. Some fall away from the faith. How do they do it? Paying attention to deceitful spirits. Paying attention to deceitful spirits. That is, giving my attention to lies. And by the way, lies don't present themselves this way. Hey, Christian, uh, I want to take from you everything that's precious. I want you to follow me down this other path. And I'm going to lead you to eternal destruction under the wrath of God. Let's go. That's not how lies work. Lies come in... (laughs) And they're effective because they're deceptive. And they're effective and deceptive when they're mingled with lots of truth. Just enough truth to get us. Just enough truth to bait us. And lead us down a path to destruction. So, some people fall away from the faith by paying attention to deceitful spirits. Listen, there's a warning here, a Psalm 1 warning. Do not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers. You don't give it air time. You don't give it air time. I was really troubled in the last couple of years, my own alma mater, the Bible college I went to, um, invited in N.T. Wright to speak. N.T. Wright is a man who does not understand the gospel, who does not know the gospel, who preaches a false gospel. And Moody Bible Institute had him in to address students. And oftentimes this happens where, let's just put truth and error on sort of the same platform and they can duke it out. That's not the way truth works. You don't give error airtime. You don't entertain it. We don't pay attention to deceitful spirits. Verse 1 also says paying attention to the doctrines of demons. Listen, you have to understand that false teaching has personality behind it, satanic personality. By satanic, I mean Satan, who is only one person, but all of his minions too. And the content of what they teach is called here the doctrines of demons. You recognize Paul here is labeling all false doctrine as demonic. And when we pay attention to these things, again, Satan parades as an angel of light. You know, this is not read your Bible backwards, inverted pentagrams, you know, that kind of stuff. It's obviously there's guys with black hats and guys with white hats, and we all know who the good guys are. No, Satan wears a white hat, and he shows up at church, and he teaches bad doctrine. And Christians fall away, so-called Christians fall away, paying attention to it. And then verse 2, there's another means, by means of the hypocrisy of liars. So now we went from the spiritual agent behind false teaching and the demonic teaching that is the content of it to the human agent that runs it through the church. 
Listen to this. The hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. By the way, you you need to understand the, the very close connection in the New Testament between false teachers and secret sin. False teachers and secret sin. And everywhere you see a false teacher showing up, you see unmortified sin in the life. Satan has a hold of a life, has a, has a man enslaved, who is able to come into the church by looking like a Christian, even looking like a leader or a teacher, and infiltrating the church with wrong doctrine that leads people to hell. And you watch a life closely, and where there is a seared conscience, where uh, sin is there, but oh, you know what? Nothing to see here. A hard, calloused heart goes with false teaching hand in hand every time. Paul here labels it the hypocrisy of liars. Turn to 1 Timothy 6.10. A 15th fall factor. And Jesus alluded to this one in the parable of the soils. For the love of money, love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Right? The world knows that if you love money and chase it all the time, you'll be pierced with many griefs. That's a temporal reality. It's a consequence. You're never going to have enough. Uh, I just heard a, a poll that was given this week of someone who was asked, who made $40,000 a year, how much do you need to make to be happy? 60000 Next question. To someone making 60000 how much do you need to make a year to be happy? 120000 then I'll be happy. Same question. A million, how much do you need to make? $10 million. You know, it never ends. Of course you're going to pierce yourself with many griefs if you love money. That's the temporal consequence. But for a professing Christian to fall in love with money that the world knows can never satisfy, to then forfeit everything and fall away from the faith. What a tragedy. What an absolute tragedy. That is a significant fall factor. Watch it in your life. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. The command there is to preach the word. Paul's telling Timothy, preach the word when it's popular, when it's not popular. Verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. That is a significant fall factor. The, the, the inability to endure sound doctrine. I don't, I don't want all that teaching. It, it's too deep, it's too thick, it's over my head, it's whatever. I, we, we just don't want uh, healthy doctrine. That's what the word sound means, that which is healthy through and through. Um, just give me something that I can use in my life today. Well, that's not what the Bible gives. That's not what God is interested in giving you. Some, some little self-help trick that can get you through your day. God wants you to know Him. And it is doctrinal. It is built on truth. It is built on realities about God and Himself and about others and about the world around us. And Paul warns to me, there's coming a day when people won't endure it. I don't want to hear that. That desire is a fall factor. Christian, watch out for it. What you're saying when you say, I don't want to hear doctrine. You say, I don't want the Bible to talk to me. <laughs> I don't want the truth. Listen, what other pathway can, they be, can there be for someone who, as a regular pattern of life, closes the Bible to himself? Says to herself, I don't want the truth. That is the pathway to apostasy. That temptation in your heart is a fall factor to watch out for. Number 17, ear ticklers, a desire for ear ticklers. Verse 3, time will come, they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. Watch that desire in your heart. I just want, I just want somebody to say what I want to hear. Um, you should be saying, I want somebody to say whatever the word of God says. God knows what I need. Whatever the next verse is, whatever God's word teaches, that's what I need to hear. He knows me better than I know myself. If you find yourself saying, just give me what I want, that is a pathway towards falling away from the faith altogether. Number 18, accumulating teaching and teachers according to our own desires. So this goes beyond the desire level. 
right? I want to have my ears tickled. Just tell me what I want to hear. Now, let's hire teachers who will do that, right? And, and listen, the church growth movement in the 20th century, late 20th century, knows that the customer is always right, right? That is the American sales mantra. So how do you contrive to do a church service? Give the customer what the customer wants. If you want more people in the church, and listen, there's lots of people out there, market the church's message to what the people want to hear, and they will come. And the problem with that as a model for ministry is you will never give them what they need, and whatever you attract them with is what you have to keep giving them to get them to stay. And, and what a tragedy when the church has bought into that consumer mindset and actually marketed, packaged, or completely done away with the biblical message in order to give the world what the world thinks the world needs. Second Timothy 4.10, another fall factor love of this world. Paul calls out Demas by name, having loved this present world, deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. This is a, kind of a last chapter in Paul's writing, 2 Timothy. Uh, you get the swan song of the Apostle Paul. He's in prison, not sure he's going to be around much longer. Um, and he's just talking about being alone. And he was deserted by Demas, a guy who professed faith, but because he fell in love with the world, Walked away. Hebrews chapter 2. Another fall factor to guard our hearts against is just simply not paying attention, just drifting. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away from it. This isn't row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 right? That's not the Christian life. You're rowing upstream. I'll never forget a documentary I watched as a kid. It, it, it's shown up in my dreams. It haunts me. <laughs> Family of four in a, in a motorboat on, uh, on the Niagara River, and uh, they're drifting. And it's just a nice Saturday afternoon picnic. Sun is out. Of course, you know what's downstream. It's Niagara Falls, and as the documentary, the true story of this family, they couldn't get the motor started. And they thought, oh, that's right. It'll get started soon enough. Don't we have oars? Yeah, but the motor will work. And they just delayed and delayed and delayed. By the time they got the oars out, they were drifting too fast to make it to the shore. And they went over and they were all killed. If the Christian life is drifted, it will fall. You can't drift. You can't drift. In fact, the command is we must pay much closer attention so that we do not drift. Drift is the natural tendency. It's gravity. It's water going towards Niagara Falls. It's where we would go without effort in the Christian life. Hebrews chapter 3. By the way, the whole book of Hebrews is this great big warning passage with all the fall factors. The theme of the book of Hebrews is simply Christ is better than everything you're tempted to turn to. Everything you're tempted to replace him with or everything you're tempted to go back to in your old pre-Christ days. A very specific application to the Jews in that day for whom the, the temple was still operating. They lived in the shadow of the temple. They had lost everything to follow Christ and there was comfort back home in Jewish culture. Go back to the temple and losing my job, losing my family, all that goes away if I just go back to the temple. And the message of Hebrews is, no, Jesus has come as the final sacrifice. Temple is done. <laughs> And God would finalize that with Titus Vespasian in AD 70, leveled the temple, right? Removed every stone from every other stone, and it's still not there. But before that, there was a very real temptation to go back to the former life before it was uncomfortable following Christ. So Hebrews 3, verses 12 to 15, a fall factor there, number 21, is an evil, unbelieving heart. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Right, the issue is about belief. What does unbelief look like? Well, stop putting yourself under the word of God. Stop submitting to the lordship of Christ. Stop obeying out of love. All the things that faith does, all the, all the things that faith looks like, just start to go away and dry up. 
Number 22, a lack of encouragement. Verse 13, encourage one another day after day as long as it's still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Listen, a significant fall factor for us Christians is the responsibility we have for each other. Encourage one another as long as it's still called today. Which, by the way, that just means all the time. Is it today, today? Yep, encourage one another. Why? So you're not deceived by sin. And that goes two ways. Encourage those around you. Hang in there, Christian. And be around people who will encourage you. Right? Don't make, don't make your closest friends those people who love the rowboat going down the stream together. Isn't this great? We can all just drift together in the Christian life. <laughs> those aren't your best friends. Number 23, the deceitfulness of sin. Again, we've seen that already. Number 24, a hard heart. Verse 15, be a detective of your own heart. Have a pulse, have a finger on your own pulse spiritually. Right? Be ready to break open your sternum, pull out your beating heart, and watch it. What does it love? What does it go after? How is it beating? Is it Christward? Watch for the hard heart, the, the calloused heart that's not sensitive to God's glory, that, that isn't de- in defense of his honor, that isn't sensitive to sin, that, that doesn't hate what he hates, and that doesn't love what he loves. Watch that. Hebrews 10, 25, and 26. This is the you-have-to-go-to-church verse, right? Um, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the habit of some. But notice, I, I put Hebrews... 10, 25, and 26 together because verse 26 starts with a four, an explanatory conjunction. You shouldn't separate those with a new chapter heading or a new paragraph. They go together. You got to go to church, verse 25. Why? For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice of sins, but a terrifying expectation of the judgment of fiery fury, fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Hell, go to church, why? Because hell. Encourage one another, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Because if you stop being around each other, you stop being around the means God intends to actually cause you to persevere and you may prove yourself never to have been a believer at all and only liable to eternal judgment. The stakes are high. This is serious. And then four final fall factors, a root of bitterness, immorality, godlessness, or what Jesus describes to the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3.16, contented fruitlessness. By the way, lukewarm there doesn't mean like medium Christianity. Like Jesus saying, I wish you were hot Christian. I wish you were a cold Christian. Jesus doesn't want cold Christians. Um, the, The point at Laodicea is that it was separated from two significant, healthful sources of water geographically. Laodicea had no water of its own. It had to be piped in. There were healthy hot springs at a neighboring town, and there was cold, refreshing drinking water at another neighboring town. They brought it both in. By the time those got in through the pipes at Laodicea, it was tepid and gross and infectious and caused disease, made everybody sick. So that people at Laodicea actually spit the water out of their mouths. Jesus said, I will spit you out of my mouths because you're neither hot nor cold. He is not endorsing cold Christianity. He's saying, don't be fruitless, useless. You've got a profession, but it's not good for anything. It's not good as a hot spring. It's not good as cold, refreshing water. It's worthless. It's just contented fruitlessness. Watch that in your life. All right, so those are the fall factors, and, and, and I hope you see the benefit of those for believers. We need these. These encourage us to cling to Christ tightly, cling to one another tightly, and frankly, if the church were under severe persecution, we would do these things more. I think we would read our Bibles more seriously. I think we would be around each other more desperately, and maybe that day is coming. But right now, in this very hard time to live as a Christian where it's just free and easy and we can have a building and we can get together whenever we want and we're not arrested, it's really hard to live as a Christian right now. And we've got to watch out for these tendencies at the heart level. All right, letter F. We just need to, to remember that eternal security and assurance of salvation are not the same thing. They're not the same thing. You can be eternally secure 
and your assurance of salvation wavers. And you could be assured of salvation, but not actually be saved. Um, so don't, don't equate those things. Assurance of salvation is subjective. It's how I feel about my standing. Eternal security is objective. It's outside of me. It's Fort Knox sealed by God, eternity past to eternity, eternity past to eternity future. Biblical assurance is never someone told you that you were okay, right? Uh, The mom whose five-year-old prayed a prayer on her lap to ask Jesus into his heart, and when the kid's 25 and doesn't go to church, doesn't read his Bible, doesn't want to be around Christians, doesn't give a rip about eternity, and mom says, oh, but you prayed a prayer. Uh, We can't give assurance of salvation that way. Right? And you can't base assurance of salvation on some past experience, some past profession of faith, any more than one of the, uh, the seeds grown up in one of the three soils that represent non-Christians can say, oh yeah, but I, I, I had green sprouts back then, so I know I must be okay. doesn't matter if I'm withered to the ground now. You know, the, the only ground for biblical assurance is present abiding faith. Present, abiding faith. A vital connection to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. That is your ground of assurance. It's going to manifest itself in obedience. right? Uh, you don't obey to get to heaven. But if heaven is your citizenship, you will obey because God has produced something in your life. And it's going to bear fruit, inevitably. We looked at that last week. And so, if I'm professing to be a Christian... And I will not break patterns of sin in my life. I have no right to assurance. Absolutely no right to assurance. In fact, you ought to fear, read the warning passages, repent, cling to Christ all over again. You and I, by the way, cannot grant real assurance of salvation to others. We just can't. What we can do is point others to biblical grounds for assurance of faith. Right? So we can point each other to biblical grounds of assurance of faith, which again is real, abiding, present faith in Christ. With all the things that real, abiding faith comes with. I want you to look at 1 John 3.18. John writes, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. That's interesting. For John, assurance of salvation at the heart level comes from real abiding faith in Christ that has the result of actual love in deed and in truth. In other words, faith on the inside manifested on the outside grants subjective, personal assurance of faith. Why? Because real works that God produces in us, Ephesians 2.10, are things that you go, wow, this kind of stuff is not what I would do naturally, but I love God, and look what he's doing through me. Oh, God's present in my life. That's great news. Look at Hebrews 6.11. Hebrews 6.11 says this, We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Where does assurance of salvation come from in Ephesians 6.11? Diligence. Diligence to cling to Christ, to to stay with him, to to persevere. Listen, again, if you're a tender-hearted Christian and you're saying, I want Christ, I don't want to leave him, I hope I don't fall away. Actually, you you can have assurance of your salvation in that very desire. The very love for Christ that calls you to say, I don't want to fall away, I want to love him, I'm clinging to him. Actually is a means and a ground of real assurance of salvation. All right, letter G. Faith is the key to perseverance. Faith is the key to perseverance. And we won't walk through all of these I'll point out the first one and you can read the others. John 3.36. This is so critical. Jesus says, He who believes, present tense, 
in the Son has eternal life. Present tense. He who believes in the Son in an ongoing, continual, present way actually possesses eternal life. That's a remarkable statement. Wait, what? I currently possess eternal life? Well, how long does eternal life last? Eternally. And if you presently possess it, it never ends. There's the doctrine of eternal security in present possession for whom? For the present believer. Right? This is why you never grant assurance to someone who used to believe. But for someone who is presently believing, has God given faith in the heart, manifesting itself out in a life, that one you can have assurance possesses eternal life. All right, I'll leave the rest of those to you to, to study and look through. You can write down at the bottom of your page two, two, two commands, 2 Peter 1.10, 2 Peter 1.10, and 2 Corinthians 13.5. Both of those are commands to test yourself, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Be diligent to, to prove that you're in the faith. In other words, it's, it's not wrong for someone who believes in eternal security to check his own heart. To look, or, look at her own soul and say, is this me? Right? Uh, unfortunately, there's no black light tattoo to reveal who the elect are, who are the ones who will really persevere. <laughs> Whom does God preserve? Those who persevere. Those who continue in belief. Simple faith. All right. Uh, we've got a few minutes for questions. If you have thoughts, questions, comments, clarifications from our last three weeks together. Great. Oh. Oh. I'm just kidding, Dustin. <laughs> Go ahead, buddy. It's even worse that I have two, but um, in the passage regarding 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2, is there any significance to how much those false teachers know that they're bringing these people away from the truth? Like, are these false teachers teaching with the, the knowledge that they are these false teachers? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's a spectrum of false teachers, and, and not to answer to... Paul's intent here, but just to make an observation on false teachers presently, <clears throat> then we'll go back to Paul's words. Um, it is possible to be teaching false things sincerely believing that they are the truth. And it's another kind of false teacher to know that you're a charlatan and to do it for the money or whatever else. So um, there's a sincere kind of false teacher and there's an intentional, I know I'm telling lies kind of false teacher, um, and that spectrum exists in evangelical Christianity today. Um, what Paul points out in 1 Timothy 4 um, is significant, um, probably of the second category, that by the means of hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience. Right? That, doesn't, that doesn't speak of the sincere kind of false teacher that just has it wrong. I, I would put N.T. Wright in the category of a sincere false teacher. Um, not, not being able to see the heart. Uh, my um, friend of mine has, has said uh, it probably is the best case of someone who doesn't understand the gospel getting as close as he can just through sheer human study. Um, and if you've read N.T. Wright, that, that rings true. It takes a lot of time to figure out what he's saying. So much of what he says is true and biblically accurate. But when it comes down to the doctrine of justification by faith alone, um, he makes such a big case out of the, the culture of Second Temple Judaism where the issue was rift between Jew and Gentile that he defines justification as not justification of a sinner before a holy God, but the justification of relationship between Jew and Gentile, reconciliation of relationship. And here's the subtlety of N.T. Wright's teaching that I, I believe he sincerely believes represents biblical truth. He says, I'm not saying that, uh, that how to get to heaven isn't by justification by faith alone in Christ alone. I'm not saying that it's not. I'm just saying that's not what Paul teaches. <laughs> well, listen, if Paul isn't teaching vertical justification by faith, then where are we going? From? So it's, it's subtle, but it undermines actually how people get to heaven. And it's a threat to the very gospel. Um, he probably is more in the category of a, of a 
really sincere scholar trying to do what he knows to do from his frame of reference rather than a, uh, you know, a TBN fraud who knows, you know, a Robert Tilton who knows he's telling lies, has admitted on camera that he's telling lies, but he's doing it for the money. So, great question, Dustin. Was that one or two questions? Uh, that was one question, but I have two. Anybody else? No, go ahead, Dustin. Get, get your second one in there. Yeah, probably case by case. So if John MacArthur were preaching in French, I'd have a really hard time getting any spiritual benefit, right? So it's not that I want to go somewhere that's intentionally obscure that I can't understand the words being said, right? And, and the onus is on the teacher to try to be as clear as he can with the audience that's in front of him. However, John MacArthur's not preaching in French. Um, it, I, I would want to ask somebody, um, more fundamental questions than what style of preaching do you prefer? I'd want to get at um, what is it that's troublesome to you about a lengthy sermon with doctrinal content that's verse by verse through the Bible? Do, do, you, do you want something other than the Bible? Do you want doctrine not explained? Um, he's not speaking in Latin. You know, I think I want to get at some other things because there's probably some heart motivations. You don't have to go to John MacArthur's church. There are style differences. There are preferences. I get it. But if someone's running away from the truth because they want to hear something different, um, they want something watered down or they want something easy, uh, they don't like being convicted, um, then there's, there's heart things going on there that, you know, are a danger to the soul. All right, anybody else? Okay, that's our time. Oh, <sighs> please, Ashley. Just so all of you heard, Ashley Anderson said, it's really interesting how I have come to the same conclusions that he has on the relationship between eternal security and the doctrine of assurance of salvation. Um, he forgets that um, sound doctrine was one of the caveats to me marrying his daughter. So I had to. I had to come to your conclusions. All right, we're dismissed. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, you didn't. You were just... Okay, all right. Now you're dismissed. <laughs> <laughs>